right, everybody. Welcome back to the Crypto 101 podcast. I'm joined by two uh, fantastic guests today, Philip Piper and Timo Lays, who are the co-founders of Swarm. Um, Swarm is uh, swarming the crypto markets uh, and capital markets and bridging traditional finance to crypto, among many other things. They've done investments in the space, and uh, they're just OGs, as I say. They, they raised money uh, here in the crypto market what was it, five or six, maybe seven years ago now at this point. So you guys have had um, quite a quite a bit of extensive experience here. Um, and so we're excited to pick your brain and hear about Swarm. But uh, welcome. And how are you both doing today? Thank you. Yeah, fantastic. It's uh, I'm sitting over here in Berlin and it's uh, beautiful weather today for a change. <laughs> so, yeah. But I envy you for being in uh, San Diego. So this is, uh, you know, yes. I'm looking over to California. Timo? Yeah, no, it's all good. Yeah, great to be here. And um, yeah, I'm actually heading over to California in a couple of months' time. Um, I, I hear the weather's been quite rough, but yeah, I'm hoping it's, yeah. it's improving quickly. Well, let me know when you get over to California. If you come down SoCal, let me know. Uh, I'll get you a beer or a beverage of choice. Um, <laughs> and you are right about that. A it taco. Is not just- a taco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, or a taco. The real, the real deal. <laughs> but yeah, California has had... Um, 40-year record sort of snowpack and rainfall. So it's been wild, and uh, I can attest to it. We've had, uh, we've almost lost a roof. Like, the winds have been crazy, and it was, it's just been yeah. wild. So, yeah, um, yeah so, so I'm excited about what, what, you, what you guys are doing at Swarm. It sounds like you guys touch a lot of different parts of the industry. So um, before we dive into Swarm, let's just get acquainted here with the audience. Uh, you know, Crypto 101, we're all about uh, financial inclusion, financial freedom, uh, sovereignty uh, over one's own assets, um, taking control, personal responsibility, all that kind of stuff. And it sounds like Swarm is 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 probably right in line with a lot of that. But but let's get um, a, acquainted with your backgrounds first. And so, Philip, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background, your specialty, um, and then Timo, we'll, we'll, you'll hit us with your background and specialty as well. So I, I would actually divide that into two different phases of my my professional life. And uh, so there was a time when I was in the financial industry. I was working for Deutsche Bank doing private equity and for an organization called Allianz Group, which is one of the biggest asset holders globally. Um, and, you know, I was basically doing pro- um, um, portfolio management for them. But then actually moved into technology. So I founded a, a couple of companies, uh, sold them, you know, uh, did, did different leverage buyouts of technologies, which, you know, then actually accumulated into actually me looking into uh, a company that is uh, actually well known called BitTorrent, which, oh, yeah. um, which uh, you know, I was then actually doing due diligence on. And then I was actually talking with, you know, Bram Cohen, the, the founder of the, the protocol, about what he was spending his time with. And I was expecting him to say anything to the tune of like building a new client or anything. And then he said, you know, I'm building a space and time-based consensus algorithm for new blockchains, which turns out to be the origin of, of Chia. But there was a way before Chia. So this was like the first foray into that. And then, you know, Timo and I knew, knew each other socially from Palo Alto. And it was around the time when I happened to move next door to this crypto community house and um, we had a lot of like very crazy and interesting people go in and out of the house. And, you know, it was just easy enough to walk over with a coffee, engage and start to start to learn about the space, start to learn about the perspectives. And, and just, you know, from there on, it's it's all history. Then we started to engage and, 
you know, sort of slightly sort of, you know, transition into the industry. This was yeah. around around 2016, 17. So yeah. Sounds like an incredible ago. journey. I, I would love to to be a fly on the wall in some of those early hacker houses and you know, sort of people formulating a lot of the the ideas that are now the protocols that are, are the kind of the bread and butter of uh, of the ecosystem. It, it sounds like you were there kind well, of that genesis. It's almost like that's a special prop podcast to be made at some point in time, or it's like <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of a lot of stories to be told which have not crypto been told after publicly dark. yet. So Oh yeah, no, we, we sort of call it the, the tales of the crypto, right? So uh, you know, <laughs> but you know, super interesting. I mean, it was obviously a very, you know, very creative time, and you know, a lot of like you know people that that were very unusual to be sort of like going into the into business even, and and still finding creative ways actually how to express their their hopes and dreams of what you know Bitcoin and blockchain should become. So. Uh, quite interesting to be associated, uh, you know, with those communities and just, you know, be open-minded enough to actually be around there. So, you know, yeah. it's been quite, quite a ride. What about you, Timo? Yeah. So yeah, I'm, you know, basically a software guy, you know, started coding when I was 14 and then like, you know, I built two software um, companies. And then after that, I, I joined a venture capital fund in Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, did a, like a very kind of basic portfolio analysis tasks for those guys. And um, so I kind of gradually moved more and more into like tech finance. I wouldn't call it like financial services because I was never like in the traditional kind of banking or that side of things, but more like, you know, always like working with software companies. So if I was doing, I did four years of M&A advisory in London, very kind of kind of tech product slash, you know, some financial aspects of it, but like mostly always like, tech and software focused. And then um, after that, I ran a, um, basically became a fund manager for the incubator fund in the tech university where I studied. So I basically ran a $30 million fund that had like institutional investors, pension fund, insurance companies, and what have you as LPs. And then, so we did uh, 24 investments. Um, Five of those, we um, basically migrated across, or the companies migrated across to Silicon Valley to kind of build build kind of a growth strategy from the Bay Area. And then when that fund closed for new investments, I moved across as well. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up in Palo Alto. And then um, basically I did a couple of uh, personal investments while I um, got there and worked with like a kind of my own, as I regard my own little smart portfolio. Um, and we exited a couple of those companies from the fund. I sold two of them, two of them IPO'd um, a few years after. But then I kind of I was kind of working with his own portfolio, if you will, and um, and then like in doing that, I got a, in contact with a lot of like entrepreneurs, obviously, um, and then gradually crypto kind of slipped into that. But it, it was kind of very gradual. So like the first instance was like you know Barry Silbert was like pitching you know GDC the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust in I think it was 2014 or something in Palo Alto. It was like yeah. running around trying to get people rallied up after his. Uh, second market thing and like and there were a couple of people i was at a uh, at rack spaces co-working space and it was like one guy was like saying well you know if you're working with fundraising and financing you should probably look at like ethereum because they're like raising money to these projects and there's like no money involved it's all crypto and I'm like what are you talking about like how, how does that even work and it's like i got in contact with some of those things that i but i didn't really engage until um a bit later like 2016 was the first time really that i got a ledger and then you know got some crypto like ethereum at seven bucks and what have you and like that that was kind of the first foray into that and that's at the same time when 
Philip moved into this neighboring house that was a crypto community house, which was like totally insane activity. And then, um, but, you know, even like in parallel with that, I was still kind of working more on like M&A advisory and doing transactions. So uh, I was actually running, heading up a um, SEC licensed um, uh, investment bank out of Palo Alto, which is basically like an M&A advisory firm. So I ran the branch office for a Scandinavian investment bank in, out of Palo Alto for, um, I kind of set it up and, and hired a bunch of people. And, and then, but having done that, it's like, you quite quickly end up in like very kind of trad fight type environments in, in, in those settings. And for me, I didn't feel like that's where I was, I wanted to go. So Philip and I, we just kind of started talking about like, what, what should we be building on blockchain? It's like pretty cool, right? Like, you know, this you know, effectively the internet of value that's coming, coming along here and we should definitely look at doing something. So it took a little bit of time, but then, you know, basically, you know, found swarm as a, as a project and then, that was the starting point, and that was yeah, basically 2017. Yeah, well, it sounds like quite the journey, and you guys made a lot of progress. And I'm sure there's been pivots along the way, challenges, milestones, all sorts of stuff. But if you were to kind of encapsulate um, what Swarm was in a nutshell, um, Timo, like how would you kind of describe it? And again, most of our listeners are, you know, maybe they're crypto traders. It's a global audience, so these are people all around the world that are. Um, investors and, and excited about the next big thing in crypto, and, and how could Swarm kind of uh, uh, kind of come to play for these guys? Yeah, so I, I think like the way we thought about it initially was basically to take like a bunch of illiquid assets, like that could be like you know venture investments or other kind of investments or assets that were just like sitting there dormant, and there was like no liquidity, and there was no no way to kind of get in and out of those assets or trade them or use them for collateral in any meaningful way. So. We, we, we kind of set down the path of like solving that problem. But then like once you've issued like a token that represents an underlying asset, then, you know, you, know, you immediately kind of want to trade it or get some liquidity for it. And we, we thought that like while we were still in the U.S., that there would be obviously companies that would solve that. So P0, Open Finance, a couple of other companies we thought would be solving the liquidity issue. Um, turned out they didn't, especially not if you look at like, how you want to solve it because you want to solve it by using like natively block the benefits of blockchain and permissionless infrastructure. And so like none of those companies were going anywhere by and large because of the SEC's kind of view of that, you know, you basically need to be an ATS and then you need to have broker dealers connected to it. And then you need to have a transfer agent. And you need to have like a bunch of TradFi institutions connected to that activity. So once we kind of decided to move the company and the project and, and also ourselves personally over to Europe, then we were just basically looking for like, okay, what is the best jurisdiction where we can set this up so that people can actually both, you know, issue security tokens and, and other kind of tokens that represent real world assets, and then also trade them and use them as collateral for issuing stable coins and do other things. And it's like, and that's when we set down the path that we're, we're, we've been on now for a couple of years, basically finding that Germany was the most interesting place. And then we said like, okay, let's definitely build this as a DeFi implementation because like, if you build a centralized exchange, you haven't really used the blockchain in any meaningful way necessarily. So we thought that if we build DeFi infrastructure so that people can basically, you know, use self-custody, hold their own things and, you know, kind of mix real world assets with crypto, then that's a really good thing. They'd be in control of their own assets. They don't have to trust like another third party necessarily. And then they could transact, you know, with a mix of securities and crypto. And that's kind of, that's the problem that we set out to solve. And we've solved that now. Fascinating. And so, Philip, am I getting this right that um, 
if I go to the Swarm platform at swarm.com, I can invest in public stocks um, that are on chain. I could invest in U.S. Treasury bonds um, and ETFs about bonds that are on chain as well and kind of regulated liquid staking platforms as well. Um, this is this is pretty wild. Um, am I getting that right? You are. And it, it actually is a culmination of a lot of things that had to happen until this is possible, the way that you're looking at this now. I mean, it, it's it's not a new and novel idea. I think everyone has been thinking about this topic for quite some time. But actually, now it's possible to actually, you know, number one, have the regulatory clarity um, in our case, you know, with a German regulator to say, you know, here's an on-chain activity relating to public stocks and bonds. And that is a regulated, permitted, tran- you know, transaction environment. And secondly, also then having the clarity how that transitions into the traditional finance world. So which means we as an organization being a regulated company that we're trusted by the ecosystem of banks and central custodians to actually be able to transact on the financial markets and bridge over these assets into into the sort of uh, blockchain environment. Right. But it's 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 completely novel. I think a lot of things had to happen to come to this point, and now it's as simple as you look at it at this on the site right now. It, it looks and smells and feels like a DeFi protocol, and it is, um, and it actually is built for this whole ecosystem of players that actually want this as a trading entity of some kind, right? Either these are stable coins that want to be backed by you know by by a collateral that is you know a certain value and certain stability. Or you have treasuries that basically uh, want to actually trade in and out of these constructs, or you have you know market makers that are looking to actually sort of you know escape volatility and and transition over to something else and back into volatility from there. Is so what we're trying to do is actually build it up to the very last moment, connected with smart contracts, transparently transacting with smart contracts, such that. You know, even the purchase on the financial markets happens triggered by a financial financial uh, by by a smart contract, and even the redemption. If you hold the token and you want to redeem for the financial value, that you can actually trigger that from the uh, smart contract as well. And that's a pretty 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 big deal because suddenly you don't have to go through some kind of brokerage account. You have you don't have a break in the system of where you're transacting on the crypto landscape, and you know you can still remain within that realm, and you have a confidence. So um, I see Apple and Tesla are um, are kind of available for for anybody to buy, and it looks like they you could see the ISIN number. Um, it's, it looks like it's issued on Polygon. Um, did Apple and Tesla opt for this, or is this something that any company could do? Do they know about this? Like, um, is this an official Apple and Tesla um, sort of issuance? So, so regulatorily speaking, we actually have, and this is all linked within the site, so everyone can actually verify that by going to the details of their prospectus. So these are financial instruments that are relating to the underlying financial instruments, in this case, for example, the Apple stock. But they become their own financial instrument, which means that they have their own ISIN number. Um, they effectively are certificates that relate to the underlying. They're built in a way that they're insolvency proof, which means that they're fully asset backed. They're basically controlled by a, a dedicated entity that is then also, you know, also co-governed by, you know, by auditing firms. And by doing it that way, 
it actually has nothing to do with Apple saying yes and permitting this to happen. We are just another actor on the financial market that is permitted from a regulatory standpoint to actually put this into the blockchain space. So it's more considered like a depository receipt where the tokens themselves are actually like their pickup slips for the for the underlying um, stocks that are sitting within central custodian infrastructure. And so we we wouldn't be able to get into the situation that the GBTC fund has gotten into where there's a discount <laughs> Uh, for the instrument to the actual underline. Is that correct? And that's correct. And actually, I would extend that. I would extend, I, I would even extend that with, you know, previous attempts of tokenized stocks, where, which often were just uh, so-called CFD products, which are contracts for differential products, which are basically just a balance sheet, pro, uh, pro, um, a balance sheet promise by the issuer to say, I'm promising you that I'm tracking the stock or I'm promising you the economic benefit from the stock, but you're not really holding the stock, right? And we've seen right. some of those instances where FTX invested in one company doing this from Germany and basically, you know, as, as a result of the FTX uh, downfall, you know, it basically became a complete, you know, company in limbo and, you know, the stocks are not really decided where they really sit at that point in time. Yeah. Timo, do you think that... Um an offering like Tesla or Apple, for instance, doing it on their own. Like, do you do you foresee a world where any of the big fi- Fortune 500 companies will issue their own stock or do some kind of offering on chain? Well, I, I think for the big like public companies, I, I think they probably have a capital market, which is really what this is about uh, in the first instance that they're reasonably happy with. So they're they're listed wherever uh, you know it's important for them to be listed with regards to institutional funds being investors and so forth. So I think I think the like the need from their point of view is probably reasonably low. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. only when you have like a company that's like has a vision that they want to kind of somehow integrate or engage their customer uh, base as an audience as well to kind of make them part of the economic um, journey, so to speak. So. You know, if you start building basically a model by which people can, if they hold like tokenized stocks, they can also get some benefits or discounts or membership mm-hmm. things related to their products and so on. So they actually start integrating like the product um, sales process with, you know, some kind of community function. And then you can kind of cross over the value between the product sales and people actually being investors and being part of the journey. So if I really like a brand, I want to buy their tokens, and then I'm also going to get some benefit from the company by being a token holder in that brand. So I think that's where we'll probably see some exciting stuff happening. Um, I'm hoping anyway. And then, you know, so that could come from even like those big companies. But then I think most of the kind of the direct blockchain issuance is going to come from like basically uh, non-public companies initially because people want to get liquidity. They want to provide it, you know, the ability to trade um their equity and so forth so that's kind of most of what we're seeing right now but then again having said that like yeah, we're we- basically involving our community in uh in like deciding also what swarm should be going forward from like which stocks do you actually want to see there right? like you know what what is it that which direction should we develop this in and we have an idea where we want to take it but we also want to like obviously involve our users in in making those decisions so that we kind of develop in 
we're developing it in a, in a you know in a direction where there's a lot of demand and interest you know from people so that we're kind of you know co-developing it yeah that, that sounds interesting and i want to circle back on that but um before i do timo you mentioned something interesting that there's kind of a reasonably low uh, level of demand for a platform like swarm or tokenized stocks and bonds reasonably low from the institutions because they already have working liquid pretty you know nice capital markets um so who is this for who are the benefits really uniquely suited for yeah if, if i i wouldn't necessarily agree with you know what you just like summarized there i think in the like if you just look at it from the current demand landscape that might be true because everyone's so familiar with the way that the sort of the the public trading aspect works and how the institutions work and these different chain of events and so forth. Um, the reality though, is it's actually a pretty cumbersome process. It's expensive. Um, you know, it takes two to three days for settling a, uh, a transfer of a stock, you know, that's two to three days where the money of what you just actually sold is sitting there with someone else and actually not reaching you and not freely available as money that you've just actually made on selling a stock. Right. Opportunity um, cost. And then, and then, you know, it's opportunity cost, but it's also the, the whole derivative landscape that as a result of a stock existing, you know, today has to be handled by, by a series of institutional players that then actually have a certain way how to handle that. Right. A lot of those functions can actually be summarized into smart contracts. So a good example is, you know, if you if you actually build a usage fund, which is something of a of a mutual fund, you know, today you do that with you know some kind of entity out of Luxembourg or or in New York that effectively then manages the comp composition of that you know fund and reports on it like every every quarter or so. Well, why not have that in a smart contract and not pay 100 basis points and annually to an entity that actually is not doing much more than just keeping those, those category allocations in place, right? There's a real material value to the fact that you can actually put that into a program, programmable smart contract that enforces it by code rather than by an organization that reports on a paper basis uh, on, these, on these issuances, right? But the the fun starts like Timo was highlighting when when actually these compositions can take other shapes and forms, right? Where you basically you can you know like like a DeFi construct where you actually can have that suddenly anyone be a market maker, not a dedicated market making entity that is a licensed company, but anyone holding the stock can actually make the market or do borrowing and lending in the same shape and form, or you can build derivative constructs that suddenly have you know a, a different shape and form to you know mix commercial value with actually stock value, and stockholders suddenly become you know investor consumers of some kind. So really yeah. exciting stuff that I think if you compare it against, you know, or with the internet early on, like everyone thought that New York's times would just be a PDF that would then be more efficiently sort of distributed to consumers, right? That was a value, but I think no one envisioned the New York times to actually have all the lively content and be real time delivered and built, you know, day by day, minute by minute, and I think that is exactly where this is going to go, right? We're at the very beginning where we're still imagining this to just have like efficiency gains on the existing process, but there will be so much more coming out of it. I love that analogy. I'm going to have to steal that one um, with, with, with New York Times because it's so true. It's like you could only conceptualize it so far as like, you know, where it is right now, but you can never imagine how much it's going to grow with as bandwidth grows and 
you know, all sorts of different things get enabled. So I like that. And, and I, it definitely feels like that's where this is going. Um, and, and it does seem like it, you know, it will make the, the life of the consumer better, being able to have access to your funds uh, to trade 24-7, 365. Um, I mean, that's a pretty like low-hanging fruit and pretty attractive for, for a consumer thinking that they're never going to get shut out of their uh, brokerage account on, on the weekend or, or anything like that. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, um, being able to have uh, cross-border liquidity uh, as a user and not, being not having to go through a bunch of apps, but just being able to transact completely from your wallet, you know, and, and still be able to control equity exposure from your wallet directly is like super attractive and something that, again, right now it's, you know, it's new and, you know, not everybody trades from a wallet, but I think that will be a growing, uh, a growing portion of people. I guess the question I have for you is in terms of like, can, can I, sorry, can I, can I make one comment? Yeah, because please. I think it's very, very revealing where if you like one, one to two years ago, actually explaining to people what it means to have self custody is a pretty abstract construct, right? Mm -hmm. Where people that, you know, have never engaged in crypto and have never known what a wallet does and, and, and actually felt what it means to actually have the assets, like not being able to be removed from your own security environment. It's, it's very abstract. But I think with the sort of emergence of DeFi, there was suddenly like a revelation to a lot of people that saying, you know, this is actually under my control. I don't have to trust a centralized crypto exchange with the entrustment of my assets. I can actually do that within, within my own environment. So that was still the crypto geeks, you know, feeling that for the first time. I think we've seen yeah. actually in the last couple of weeks with SVB and every, everything else happening that suddenly that is extending to actually everyone using a bank being somewhat concerned that suddenly you might be shut out of your, your well-deserved you know, funds that are sitting there in the bank. Bingo. So I think the construct of actually having self-control and, and owning your own destiny on what to do with those assets, it's taking a lot more shape and form these days. And I think that will actually sort of become a, a really interesting observation for the market to come how that's actually going to extend into the real world of, of traditional finance and possibly actually move people over that are not crypto geeks. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. This it, whole, it, uh, it, the whole thing's become a lot more real. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's like, and that's happening like across various verticals, right? So it's like, it's almost like an Uber like analogy where, you know, people, it's still a taxi, you're still taking a, a cab somewhere. Right. But it's like the experience is totally different and, and it just kind of, changes the way people thought about like how to order a taxi and then here's like the same thing it's like what's well, still stock trading and whatever else but it, the experience is totally different you're much more in control by yourself and and it's like it's also the av availability is totally different as well so it's like there's actually like you know a lot of analogies that you can find like that in from web 2 that now kind of is emerging within web 3 as well and and i th i think that one of the also pretty cool things about crypto is um you know, obviously having these different yield farms and different liquidity strategies, I guess it's like, you know, it is like bonds and stuff. Um, it's just a different risk profile. But are there any like tools or automation sort of strategies that Swarm has so that an investor could instead of maybe saying, hey, I want to use Swarm to trade the market, just like buy the market and, you know, have you know like an S&P of crypto or anything like that? Yeah, so we've been working quite a lot on, on the index side of things. So just to kind of with a couple of the data providers, as well as some of the index administrators that are out there in TradFi, 
to basically figure out like how do we build you know index products that basically people can just go in and buy okay i want to buy across this theme you know maybe i want to have like a you know a layer one staking index so i'll basically buy eth solana avalanche polkadot some other things in a basket and then have you know, basically somebody else rebalanced that, but I'm just buying the one coin because then I know that I have exposure and I also have, you know, basically the yield from those underlying staking products. So it's like those kind of things we're working on and we have built some of that already. Now we haven't launched any any of that in like a bigger public um, kind of forum yet, but, you know, the embryos and the kind of the components of those products, we have that, right? So it's more now it's more about like figuring out like, okay, so how do we combine that with like securities and, and bonds and other things to create something that makes sense to the market? And I, I would also just say sometimes this, sometimes this, this, the small things actually matter a tremendous amount. So if you, if you look at, for example, tokenizing bonds, um, you know, a lot of the things that we had to conceptualize and work through regulatorily speaking is actually how to how to deal with the yield coming from, you know, from within the bond and, you know, how to distribute that. And suddenly you realize that basically by just streaming it out there to the holders of the token, there's a much more real-time distribution that doesn't wait for like a a quarterly sort of distribution, but you can do it like immediately, right? Right. And I think that's really, really going to change the way that people are going to understand the assets, but also the economic value is much more real-time accessible and the logistics are like like massively easy and it's and it's like the transparency is easy so you you then can have tools that analyze that and you basically don't have to like wait for some report to show up but you can actually just analyze it from within the smart contract right then you know the same actually like timo was describing on the index side but it also applies to any kind of bundling strategy like if you have the components that then actually compose a bundle or an index it's transparent it's not like like 2008 all over again where the cdc's yeah. of repackaged and packaged uh, products actually then become sort of their their own in uninterpretable things but here you have programmable transparency. You see right. down to the line item what something is composed of and what the value is in each one of those assets. Completely different story. This is actually you know, worlds apart from how that actually was constructed in the early days of derivatives markets. Yeah. And, and to round things out, I mean, why, why is the SEC so damn resistant to a technology like this? Why, why is it so difficult for American companies to innovate on these very, you know, simple, streamlined sort of processes that we could integrate to make uh, the capital markets far more transparent and auditable and uh, and equitable for everyone. And why are they so resistant? Yeah, it's a philosophical okay. so, question. Maybe there's no right well, answer. <laughs> there's so many nuances to that question, right? And there's like multiple things happening on multiple levels. You know, there's like seems to be some kind of land grab between CFTC and FTSEC and and like who's going to govern what and why. And then there's like the general view, basically not recognizing that this is like a huge innovation from the SEC side, basically saying that all of these things are securities, which is a gross oversimplification and and like it and, and then kind of acting accordingly. Um, yeah. in, in like, especially in rears, right? That basically everything that was offered over the last five years have been, you know, unregistered security offerings. Very kind of destructive approach. I think, you know, they have managed to grab a couple of, you know, scammers and that's all good. But then, you know, beyond that, they've just like 
in my view, grossly overreached in terms of like how you should handle an innovation like this. Because, you know, if there was actually some real intent behind, you know, come and talk to us and, and we'll figure something out, then, you know, there could have been like a really good uh, conversation or dialogue there. Now that yeah. dialogue has not happened. And now it has, you know, basically failed completely with the, with the most recent direction. So, yeah, no, I think it's like very difficult to see how, you know, U.S. is going to come out on top. I mean, obviously, there's always like immense amounts of capital backing all different projects. But, you know, if it's effectively illegal to operate them, then that's a huge issue. So I, I think I think also we, we um, have to recognize that the SEC and, and not just the SEC and the United States have been working, obviously, with, um, you know, enforcement or, you know, uh, um, regulation by enforcement or by action rather than actually giving stipulations on where they, they think it should be going, right? And maybe maybe you can almost like draw the conclusion that that is because you know you're working off of case law rather than common law, and you know it is a it is a certain way to sort of hone in on a new topic to see what's going wrong and actually actually leave white space open for people to operate. But in this case, actually the enforcement fear was giving so much fear into the market that you know it actually has never given like real innovators, like a, a lot of like confidence to actually invest time and personal liability into that. So, you know, I think by at this point in time, when you look at actually how Europe and specifically Germany has been dealing with this, it is coming back to that common law practice where practice where it's basically saying, let's try to put a framework in space in, in place that, you know, you, you, you start to fill out and yes, we can still move and move the goalposts along the way, but going forward, not looking backward that, you know, it, it actually, from our perspective, gives us a much more, um, you know, feasible way to deal with it by, you know, by showing the regulators, by showing the legislators the way that you can do it within the understanding that they have. And it helps us also just to, with that demonstration to actually then, you know, help to write new law. So in this case, sort of the early innings of the regulatory environment in Europe was, you know, Germany jumping in saying, okay, we're going to amend the Banking Act that was beginning of 2020, which has now led to a blueprint across Europe, which is called the Mika regulation, which is taking effect second half of this year. You know, there's a progression happening where, you know, in America, however, it's it's very flip floppy where you, you have certain waves, you know, then each wave have its, has its own, you know, enforcement action coming against it. So the ICO wave had its own enforcement actions, small stuff, but big stuff too. Now we're seeing the same thing with the centralized exchange exchanges and the lending space. You know, there's always a reaction to these big waves, Yeah. but what it then misses out is actually to say, well, what is it that we see good in this technology? So, I mean, as an example, I mean, you know, the way that Coinbase came out last week and said, you know, we asked the SEC to tell us what is a security on our exchange and we would have taken care of it. But in the 30 meetings that they, that they had and probably like like 10 times the letters that they actually exchanged with the SEC, <laughs> no one was willing or able to say that. Right. And it actually, it shows how high degree the degree of in, like in confidence is in that in that. So it doesn't converge. It actually just stays diffuse at that point in time and that's not healthy yeah no there's a lot that we need to uh to clear out um and it sounds like coinbase is uh, they got their wells noticed they're taking it to the courts um yeah. they think they're you know they're whatever they they got a case right they got a case in their hands they're gonna yeah. defend it tooth and nail um brian armstrong said you know or i i, I 
it might have been one of the, the lawyers in their team, but they said, you know, the morale in the office has never been higher. Like, yeah. they, they've yeah. got a, a, another cause to unify them. So, uh, Grayscale as well. They're, I mean, they're being heard in the in the Supreme Court right now for their case of the SEC. And a lot of good stuff is happening. Um, exciting. The, the winds are changing. But, gentlemen, that's all the time we have today uh, on the Crypto 101 podcast. I greatly appreciate both your guys' time. Uh, to tell us about Swarm uh, and your guys' visions of the future. So, uh, Philip, uh, Timo, we'll leave it at that. And uh, we hope to hear from you guys again uh, when you guys have some new updates. Awesome. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.